Welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Dr. Ashley Miller, and I am a recent graduate of the Pediatric Residency Program at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta. I am currently a practicing pediatrician in the community. I am excited to return today to continue our discussion on childhood obesity. Check out my last episode with Dr. Jamie Lawson, published in April of 2021. Our discussion today will focus on counseling families on nutrition and physical activity to help prevent obesity. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Rebecca Yang, who is a pediatrician on faculty at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Yang. Thanks for having me, Ashley. I'm really excited about our discussion today. Dr. Lawson and you did a fantastic job on your last episode on defining obesity and recognizing associated comorbid conditions. I really appreciated your tips on beginning the conversation with families on the importance of intervention to prevent and treat obesity. I think of today's episode as the prevention discussion. That's right. Today we plan to focus on nutritional requirements for healthy growth and development and how food insecurity plays a role in obesity. We will also discuss how clinical providers can play a role in promoting physical activity. Ashley, why don't you start our discussion with a clinical case? Sure. A three-year-old female presents to clinic for a well-child visit. She was born early due to maternal preeclampsia at 36 weeks gestation. As an infant, she had some initial feeding difficulties. Mom was able to breastfeed, but eventually had to supplement with a specialized formula for growth. However, by 12 months old, the child transitioned well to table foods and no other development or medical problems. Today, mom is concerned that over the last year, the child has become pickier. She has no problems getting her to eat a variety of fruit, but refuses to eat any type of vegetable. Her go-to food is chicken nuggets. The child is drinking mainly whole milk and juice. Mother is frustrated and wants advice on how to combat her picky eating child. Great case. So let's first talk about why nutrition is so important, especially at the younger age group. Prevention of childhood obesity is more complicated than just talking about meal portion size and variety. Prevention actually starts even before the baby is born. Did you know that studies have shown that higher maternal weight entering pregnancy increases the risk for obesity and also for cardiometabolic complications among offspring? Oh, wow. But I always hear people encouraging women who are pregnant to eat whatever they want because they are eating for two. While these words may be well-meaning, pregnant women should still be encouraged to eat a well-balanced diet, even if they are eating more portions. One of the strongest predictors of obesity of an individual is actually the Maternal Preconceptual Body Mass Index, or BMI, along with excess gestational weight gain of the mom. The American Academy of Pediatrics, or the AAP, has stated that maternal prenatal nutrition and the child's nutrition in the first two years of life are crucial factors in a child's neurodevelopment and lifelong mental health. That's right. Failure to provide key nutrients during this critical period of brain development may result in lifelong deficits in brain function despite subsequent nutrient repletion. The AAP also emphasizes that nutritional status during the first 1,000 days of life of a child can also impact the risk of developing adult-onset obesity, 
hypertension, and diabetes. Yes, there is a lot of research that has demonstrated that early childhood nutrition also affects a child's risk of obesity. Research has shown that between ages zero and five years old is the most critical period in the development of being overweight and obese. So being overweight or obese during childhood is highly predictive of adult obesity. So when pediatricians discuss with families about appropriate nutritional intake for their children, it is not just about preventing obesity, but we are also helping them understand that the nutritional environment can affect brain growth and differentiation. So it's a great way to ease into the conversation on prevention of obesity. I agree. Okay, so let's talk about early nutrition. We mentioned the importance of maternal nutrition during pregnancy, but what are recommendations of nutrition during infancy? Exclusively breastfeeding is the recommendation for the first six months of life. Ideally, we encourage mothers to continue to breastfeed through the first year of life or longer if they desire to do so. So how exactly is breast milk associated with the decreased risk of developing obesity? Good question. Breast milk is the gold standard for infant feeding and nutrition because it meets the health needs of a growing baby. A study I read in the American Journal of Epidemiology suggested that a longer duration of breastfeeding was associated with a decrease in risk of being overweight later in life. Breastfeeding for three months or less provides a minor protective effect for childhood obesity, while breastfeeding six months or more showed a major protective effect for childhood obesity. Breastfeeding also helps mothers lose their pregnancy weight, too. Yes, that's definitely a great benefit for mom. Are there dietary needs for a breastfeeding mom? You bring up a good point. So we always counsel families that any amount of breast milk is encouraged, but the quality of breast milk is also affected by mom's nutritional intake and health. Breastfeeding mothers generally need more calories to meet their nutritional needs while breastfeeding. The number of additional calories needed for an individual breastfeeding woman is also affected by her age, body mass index, activity level, and the extent of breastfeeding. Roughly, an additional 450 to 500 kilocalories per day is recommended for well-nourished breastfeeding mothers compared with the amount they were consuming before pregnancy. But again, even though there is an increase in caloric needs, intake should be well-balanced and nutritionally appropriate. All breastfed infants should also be prescribed daily vitamin D3. So why is vitamin D so important for infants? Vitamin D is important for calcium and phosphorus absorption to build strong teeth and bones. Infant reserves are used up quickly if not adequately replenished and can lead to rickets. What is the recommended dose for vitamin D? The recommended dose for breastfed infants is 400 international units daily. This should be prescribed upon discharge of the newborn nursery. Good to know. Besides the well-known benefits of breast milk for immune health, how does it compare to infant formula in regards to nutrients? So there are many reasons that breastfeeding may not be an option for families. So infants should then be fed an iron-fortified infant formula during the first year of life. Did you know that all infant formulas marketed in the United States must meet the nutrient specifications listed in FDA regulations, and this also includes generic brands. So families should never feel pressured to buy a certain brand of standard formula if breastfeeding is not an option. 
Exactly. However, each individual infant formula may have different sources of proteins and carbohydrates that are included to set them apart. And there are sometimes medical reasons, such as a cow's milk protein allergy or galactosemia, that would require an infant to use specific specialized formulas. I've read that infant formula tends to have higher protein content in comparison to breast milk, and this has been questioned as a contributor to pediatric obesity. Yes, that's an interesting point you bring up. In general, studies have shown that higher protein and fat intake in early childhood is associated with increased risk of being obese later on in life. A study conducted in 2019 looked at optimized protein intake in term infants to support physiological growth and promote long-term health. This study looked at the early protein hypothesis, which proposed that a dietary protein-induced evaluation of amino acids might enhance the secretion of insulin and insulin-like growth factors 1 or IGF-1. So, Dr. Yang, if there is an increase in IGF-1, this can lead to weight gain and increase in adipogenicity, right? Yes, Ashley. If we have an increase in weight gain and adipogenicity, then the patient has an increased risk of obesity and associated non-communicable disease. Good to know. So what about the four to six month age range? This is the time when parents begin asking about introducing solids into their baby's diet. The AAP recommends breastfeeding or formula feeding as a primary source of nutrition for the baby for about six months. Once solid foods are added to the baby's diet, adjusted amounts of breast and formula feeding should continue until at least 12 months old to provide adequate nutrition for growth and development. Ashley, how would you counsel families on when their infant is ready for more nutrient-dense complementary foods? There are developmental factors to consider that providers should counsel families about. First, the infant should be able to demonstrate independent control of their head. Second, the infant should be able to sit up and lean forward. Third, the infant should be able to show signs like turning their head away to show they are full. And fourth, the infant should be beginning to reach, pick up food, and try to put it in their mouth. Exactly. Generally, when infants double their birth weight, typically at about four months of age, and weigh about 13 pounds or more, they might be ready for solid foods. It is also around this time that babies typically begin to develop the coordination to move solid food from the front of the mouth to the back for appropriate swallowing. I feel like I hear at the four-month well child, parents often mention that the grandparents are typically the ones who start giving solids first because that is how they used to do it, or they just want to make their grandbaby happy. Are there any risks or benefits to starting solids early? Yes. Families are always so eager to start solids. You should counsel families that starting solids too early before age four months old actually increases the risk of aspiration. What's also interesting is that studies have also shown that obesity rates differ between those infants who were breastfed at the time of introduction to complementary foods versus formula-fed infants at the introduction of complementary foods. One theory is that infants who are breastfed are better at self-regulation and are able to self-regulate their solid food intake by decreasing their breast milk intake. 
while infants who are fed formula in addition to complementary solid foods may actually have an increase in caloric intake and are not so great about self-regulating what's in front of them. That's really interesting. Another common question I get from parents is what foods should they start their babies on? There are so many trends out there when it comes to introducing solids, such as baby-led weaning, purees versus no purees, veggies first, then fruit. What are your thoughts? Traditionally, pediatricians have advised starting with iron-fortified cereals or vegetables prior to the introduction of fruits to avoid an infant being exposed to sweeter flavors. But there is insufficient evidence to support any specific order of complementary food introduction. It is more important to offer a variety of single-ingredient fruits, vegetables, meats, and grains in, in any order to help babies become accustomed to diverse flavors. However, it is helpful to introduce one food at a time before moving on to another food to ensure appropriate tolerance. What about fluid intake? You mentioned breast milk or formula should continue to complement intake until 12 months. So around six months, the infant can have a little bit of water, maybe about four to eight ounces per day in an open sippy or strawed cup. Small amounts of water can also be added with the introduction of complementary foods. This helps develop cup drinking skills and familiarity with water. If the family lives in the area where the water is fluorinated, drinking water will also help prevent future tooth decay. But remember that water intake should not replace breast milk or formula before 12 months old. What about juice? Obviously, fruit juice does not equal fruit intake. That's right, Ashley. Before 12 months of age, fruit and vegetable intake should come from solid foods. The AAP recommends no juice in children younger than one year, no more than four ounces per day in children ages one to three years old, no more than four to six ounces per day in children four to six years old, and then no more than eight ounces per day in children seven to 18 years old. Wow, those are pretty strict guidelines that I know are not followed very well. Yes, and once children are exposed to juice, it may be difficult to limit portions or get them to prefer plain water. In general, the World Health Organization also recommends limiting added sugar intake to less than 10% of total calories a day, with increased benefits of reducing intake to less than 5% of daily caloric intake. Despite these recommendations, U.S. children and adolescents report consuming about 16% of their calories from added sugars. Nearly half of these are from sugary drinks. This means that children have a diet that is often high in caloric intake while being nutrient deficient. Ashley, you bring up a very good point. The average American diet is very calorically dense while lacking key nutrients and increase in intake of sugar. With this being said, we as pediatricians need to recognize that the children coming to see us could be hungry, even those who are obese. This is what we refer to as food insecurity. Ashley, let's expand on what food insecurity means. Sure. The U.S. Department of Agriculture, or the USDA, finds a food insecure household as one in which access to adequate food is limited by a lack of money or other resources. 
Yes, that's right. Did you know that one in seven U.S. children live in households with food insecurity? Unfortunately, during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, that number increased to as many as one in four children. So these are households who report not being able to afford balanced meals and worrying that food will run out before they have the money to buy more. Exactly. As we know, chronic medical conditions can lead to higher healthcare costs and utilization. You might be surprised to hear that food insecurity and obesity commonly co-occur, and each condition leads to significant adverse health and social consequences. Research has shown that food insecurity across the U.S. is associated with increased prevalence of chronic health conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, and general poor health status for adults facing food insecurity. And poverty with or without the layer of food insecurity predisposes low-income individuals to have a suboptimal diet. Yes, in fact, a recent study found that persistent household food insecurity without hunger was associated with 22% greater odds of child obesity compared to those without persistent food security. Low-income neighborhoods have limited food outlets stocked with fresh produce and whole grain options, better known as food deserts. Ashley, can you explain to the listeners what a food desert indicates? Yes, the CDC defines food deserts as areas that lack access to affordable fruits, vegetables, whole grains, low-fat milk, and other foods that make up the full range of a healthy diet. The key phrase for food desert is lack of access. Access to these foods can be limited by factors such as income, location, time, and the ability to travel to a store. Access to healthy foods can be a challenge in the rural area where there are less retailers and stores that supply fresh, nutritious food. Did you know that here in the United States, about 23.5 million urban and rural Americans live in a food desert, with nearly half of them in low-income areas? Wow, I'm guessing that the number of food deserts is likely underreported. Exactly. Low-income children are more likely to be living in areas saturated with fast food restaurants and convenience stores. Nutrient-dense foods like fresh fruits and vegetables typically have a high per-calorie cost compared to calorie-dense junk foods. So what can we do as pediatricians to help families who might be at risk of food insecurity? Pediatric well-child visits are great opportunities. In addition to ensuring that vaccinations are up-to-date, developmental milestones are being met, and anticipatory guidance are reviewed, we should also be looking at the hunger vital sign. The hunger vital sign? Yes. The AAP has a written policy on how to address food insecurity in the office and simplified it to two questions to ask for each routine health assessment. Providers should ask families either directly or incorporate into an intake form with the following. Within the past 12 months, were you worried whether food would run out before you had enough money to buy more? And the second question is, within the past 12 months, the food that was bought just didn't last long enough until money was available. A yes response to both questions increases the likelihood of food insecurity existing in the household. An affirmative response to only one question is often an indication of food insecurity and should prompt additional questioning. This is definitely something simple enough to incorporate into a well-child visit. 
For various reasons, families may not be comfortable discussing food insecurity. I like to start the conversation by acknowledging the difficulties of eating nutritious foods on a budget. Access to healthy foods is also a barrier for some families. Because of that, as a pediatrician, it is so important for me to know what resources are available in the community. And this includes government services. Ashley, what resources do you know about that would be helpful to patients? Formerly known as food stamps, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, serves as the first line of defense against hunger and food insecurity. There is also the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, or WIC. This is a public health program that provides nutrition education, breastfeeding support, and nutritious foods to low-income pregnant women and mothers of small children. Another program is the National School Lunch Program, or NSLP, which provides one to two nutritious meals a day to students, depending on their family's household income. This program operates in public and nonprofit charter schools. But don't forget about the holidays and summer break when food insecurity may be more prominent. There are many local community or religious groups that can provide needed access to food. I agree. I know in my own experience, I try to always ask where people like to grocery shop so I have a better idea of understanding what foods they have available to them. When I know where a patient lives and where they shop, I have a better idea of how I can help them think about meal planning to incorporate more whole food into their diet, reducing processed foods, which in turn provides more nutrient-dense foods for patients and their families. We could really discuss food insecurity all day, but let's shift our discussion to the importance of physical activity in the prevention of childhood obesity. Sure. Let's introduce another clinical case to start our discussion. A 12-year-old male presents to clinic for a well-child visit. During today's visit, his parents ask what they can do about his recent weight gain. He is spending more time playing video games, and it has been difficult to motivate him to go outside and play. He was previously enrolled in soccer, but did not sign up this year due to the parents' work schedule. Upon review of his growth chart, his body mass index, or BMI, has increased from the 65th percentile to the 85th to 95th percentile for boys his age in the last three years. There are no physical exam findings at this time that would indicate metabolic syndrome, and his blood pressure is appropriate for age. There are family risk factors for diabetes and heart disease. So Dr. Yang, what can we do to motivate this child to increase his physical activity? Great case, Ashley. Physical activity plays an important role in the prevention of becoming overweight and obese in childhood and adolescence, and helps to reduce the risk of obesity in adulthood. We should also recognize that appropriate physical activity for children can vary. What do you mean by that? The great thing is that there are so many ways for people to engage in physical activity. For example, there are some children who engage in competitive physical training with organized sports such as soccer or swimming, while others may prefer more recreational activities such as dancing, roller skating, or even walking a family pet. What's important is that we encourage children to adopt and prioritize healthy, lifelong exercise. 
Well, Dr. Yang, in my clinical practice, I unfortunately encounter more young people not engaging in self-motivated physical activity outside of a physical education class at school. Children are spending more time in sedentary activities, such as working on the computer, playing video games, and watching television. Good point, Ashley. We now have children with a higher body mass index, or BMI, than earlier generation of peers. And not only is weight a problem, but less physical activity means that children have a decrease in flexibility, muscular strength, bone density, and even cardiorespiratory capacity. And we all know that this also increases the risk of developing significant chronic diseases later in life. Yes, the AAP recommends parents develop a family media use plan to help children limit screen time activities to avoid replacing valuable time missed for sleep, physical activity, and social interaction. So how would you go about counseling families about the importance of making physical activity a normal routine rather than a sporadic activity? It's so important to stress the medical benefits. Exercise improves body composition, decreases cardiovascular disease risk, and is a preferred treatment for fatty liver disease and prediabetes. And don't forget about the psychological benefits. Physically active children are more likely to have better social and motor skills and have better stable mood, improve sleep, and improve academic performance. So you can talk about these things with families. So what recommendations can I make to families in regards to the amount and type of appropriate physical activity? Good question. The intensity and types of appropriate physical activity changes as a child ages. Many factors can also influence a child's level of physical activity, such as disabilities, family and parental support, or even physical environment that the child lives in. I think there are a couple things I need to know about the child and the family before I dive into specific recommendations of physical activity. First, I like to know what is the patient interested in? Do they like to dance, jump rope, play outside, play a specific sport? This helps me tailor my advice on physical activity when I know what a child likes to do. Good point. Consistent exercise habits are more likely to continue through adolescent and adulthood when people find something they enjoy to do. Next, I also ask people where they live and what resources they have access to. If I recommend a 30-minute walk every day for a patient, this may create frustration for the family if they live in an area without access to sidewalks. So work with the family on creative ways to increase their child's daily physical activities. What's important is finding ways to get their heart pumping for a certain amount of time. So think about jumping jacks, squats, running in place. These don't need a large space. So you mentioned earlier that appropriate physical activity depends on age and development. Let's talk about that. That's right. Remember that activities should be appropriate for a child's age be enjoyable, and also variable. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services formed a federal advisory committee made up of leaders in the fields of physical activity, health, and medicine. This committee worked together to analyze scientific literature that culminated to a report that provides guidance on the amount and type of physical activity necessary to maintain or improve overall health and reduce the risk or prevent chronic disease. The newest edition released in 2018 even included guidance for preschool children. 
The AAP has adapted these recommendations to a policy they released in 2020 to help pediatricians assess and counsel families on physical activity needs. Yes, I found these recommendations really helpful in starting the sometimes uncomfortable conversation with parents. The AAP recommends assessing and documenting gross motor skills, physical literacy, and physical activity levels at all health supervision visits. Ashley, I have found this first step to be crucial to helping families create their own physical activity plan. This helps to identify delays or deficits and helps you as a pediatrician give more patient-specific recommendations regarding physical activity. The AAP also encourages us as pediatricians to explain that physical activity does not just benefit our children physically, but it also helps with social growth development and improved mental health. I think that is a common misconception, Dr. Yank. People see exercise as just a way to change their body, but it has so many other benefits. I think one of the most important things parents and providers can do is walking the walk and not just talking the talk. Ashley, that's right. Encouraging families to make exercise a family event is one of the easiest ways to create a healthy lifestyle for the whole family. The AAP encourages pediatricians to provide specific tools and resources to help families build these skills. It would be helpful to provide a list of public parks, trails, and community-based activity programs at each well-child visit. What another great discussion today. But it's already time to wrap up our episode. Let's quickly summarize some of the key points. Sure, I'll get us started. Regular physical activity is an essential thing that all people can do to improve their health no matter what age, gender, race, or current fitness level. When you combine this with good nutrition, you are helping your patients grow up to be healthy adults. As a pediatrician, it is important to ask questions about nutritional status to figure out barriers to a healthier lifestyle. Remember, prevention is one of the most important steps we can take to help children grow and develop well so they can be successful, healthy adults. And while I know we talked about this in our previous episode, using the 521 Almost Non Mnemonic is an easy way to initiate conversation with every family about healthy eating and physical activity. Five is to remember to have five or more servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Two is for two hours or less of recreational screen time. One is for one hour of physical activity. And almost none is meant to discourage sugary drinks and promote water as the sole liquid intake during the day. I love that mnemonic. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Yang. Thank you for having me. This is such an important topic, and I'm so glad I was able to talk about it with you. An additional thanks to Dr. Shruti Kapoor, who peer-reviewed today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. Follow the link in our show notes for free CME credit for today's episode. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.